Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 111. This interview is with Patrick Salier, CEO of Gigia, which provides a powerful technology that enables brands to collect data from all sources in order to better understand and connect with their customers. Servicing some of the most digitally savvy companies in the world, such as Red Bull, Pepsi, Nike, Assos, as well as some upscale names such as Barney's, New York Christie's, and Kate Spade, Giga is clearly in the sweet spot for companies looking to create a single customer view and connect with their customers. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue Internet Show, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, author of TheMindset.com, that's T-H-E-M-Y-N-D-S-E-T, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes on the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to the Minter Dialogue, piped in from California, Patrick Sellier. So, nice to have you on board. Can you, Patrick, can you tell us who you are, what you do, and what is your mindset? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for having me. My pleasure. Uh, my name is yeah, my name is Patrick Salyer. I'm the CEO at Giga. In terms of what Giga is, uh, Giga is a consumer identity and data management platform that helps businesses turn uh, customers from really unknown customers, anonymous customers, to known loyal customers. And we do that through a three-part platform. First is we help businesses identify and register uh, users on their sites and apps. Second is we actually consolidate data into a single customer view. And third, we use that data to actually impact and improve ROI and all the marketing that they're doing. And we really do this at scale. Just to give you a sense, uh, 700 uh, enterprise customers today, uh, 50 of the top 100 Comscore properties in the U.S., eight of the top 10 media companies, about 40% of our clients actually are uh, international today, uh, most of that actually in, in EMEA. Um, and uh, just really, really happy to, to be here today. What is my mindset? Well, um, you know, it's, it's a great question. Right now, I guess I'm super excited because what we're noticing is that uh, the market that we're in, which is really uh, identity and using identity to better know your customers, engage your customers, is taking off in, in a big, big way. I mean, we can hardly keep up in terms of hiring. Uh, we doubled our team in the last year to uh, 350 people almost. And um can't really keep up. So it's a, it's a great problem to have. We just opened an office in London over the last couple of years, just opened one in Paris, and growing those teams really rapidly. Well, so if I have some people that want a job, uh, I'll have to send them for, I mean, in England or France or wherever, or we'll send them your way. Yeah, please, please do. We're um, hiring. So are we, from what you're saying, Patrick, it would be very clear to me that you're in the sweet spot. Uh, and this, this notion of identity, the single view customer, uh, how, to what extent is that, how are you managing the offline and online components of that? So, yeah. you know, in retail or where are us? Yeah, well, let me just talk about if, if you're a B2C marketer today um, and you're looking to manage your customer, your consumer data, it's likely that you're using a pretty legacy solution to do that. Maybe one that was built over the last five to 10 years, pretty cobbled together, not modernized, not cloud, not SaaS. And that used to be okay, but there's been a lot of really big mega trends that have really changed the game there. I mean, you have this idea that uh, consumers, customers aren't just using web, they're using mobile devices, right? You have this idea that 
uh, customers don't want to just create a username and password, but use social identities to log into your site. You have uh, you move from only needing a first name, last name on a customer to all this big data that you need to access and manage. And now there's all this regulation you have to consider. Things like the EU data directive or COPA compliance in the U.S. So the bottom line is the market's changed dramatically and legacy solutions don't really work. And so what we've tried to do is modernize that from the ground up, build a new cloud-based, SaaS-based solution that considers things like social identities, consider things like mobile devices, big data, regulation, to give the marketer really a modern solution to manage identities and to manage that data in the cloud. And, um, you know, I think that's going to include data that you can get through registration uh, on a website. That can also include data that you can get from social networks through social login. It can include things like behavior data on the site or even offline data that you can get uh, off the site and mirroring all that together. But one interesting point about your comment offline and online is um, now that when consumers go into a store, they've got their mobile device in their pocket. So what we're seeing is a really interesting stuff that um, you know folks like Alex and Annie, a, a retailer in the U.S., are doing where they're getting users to connect um, and, and actually get an email address, get them to sign up through a loyalty program in store through their device. Right. So right. you kind of move something that used to be offline mm -hmm. to online. Me Red Bull. I was going to just give one other example. Red Bull, one of our customers. Really interesting because five years ago, Red Bull had no direct relationships with consumers. Right. They were sold mm -hmm. in convenience stores or grocery stores. Mm -hmm. Now they have a whole suite of sites and apps, whether it's a loyalty program, a way to engage with customers. And they're building up. Uh, customer relationships, email addresses, data on those customers to market to them, build a real relationship because they have the mobile device in their pocket every time they're having a Red Bull. So I think offline, online, it's almost going away. You have direct digital relationships with consumers and you need a cloud platform to do that because it's across all different touch points, all different devices. All right. Well, I, I completely get it from a consumer standpoint, from, from a company standpoint, though, it's not quite as obvious because I have sales personnel in the store that have been used to operating in a certain way with legacy systems, maybe no Wi-Fi in the store and so on and so forth. So from a company perspective, the ability to upload and get out of a sort of a brick and mortar mentality you know, has its limitations. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an important point. And I think really most retailers, for example, or most brands have been in an anonymous mindset, right? Where they, they just say, I'm not going to have that direct relationship with consumers, or I maybe I'm going to buy data on those consumers from third-party data brokers. And the first one is, is, is bad because you're not building a permanent lasting relationship. The second one's bad because it's not great for consumers and privacy, right? They don't have control of their data. So really it is a movement toward building direct relationships with consumers and, and having to think about what are the how are reasons you can get users to connect with your brand digitally? So that might be a loyalty program that uh, you ask the, the, the user to join at checkout, right? It could be an in-store kiosk where you're having them sign up for a registry if they're going to get married. Um, it could be a lot of different, the list could be emailing your, their receipt to them. A lot of different touch points. You think about these digital connection points that you want to create even in-store, but of course digitally on the website's apps uh, as well. All right, so when you're, when you're in with a customer, like let's say you know, you're up with the top, top brass and you're talking about your, your proposition to them, where, where do you see them scratching their head the most? Yeah, and, and um, in, in terms of uh, what value we provide, or do you mean sort of in no, terms their ability of, uh, to understand what you're doing? In other words, you know, the Red Bull folks, they got it before you came along. 
they, they've been right. thinking about this stuff. And I mean, I would say, I mean, don't want to throw any flowers at them, but there are some brands and some leaders that really get it. A lot of other companies are definitely a long way from that. And the C-suite is still happy to use a paper agenda. So, sure. you know, there's a, a gap sometimes. And I was wondering, where do you see people really scratching their head about, hmm, or the problem? Where's the central nervous system where they're, really, where they're grappling, you know, grasping with the problem? Yeah, you know, I, I think that if you talk to any C-level executive, they want to know more about their customers and have direct relationships with their customers. I mean, that is absolutely paramount to every brand to have a direct ongoing lasting relationships with the customer, with the consumer, I and mean, that's everything. And so um, what you're seeing is that if you start there, and that's really the foundation of our technology, we help businesses identify their consumer. We help them know more about their customer and ultimately take that knowledge and put it into action to impact marketing performance. If you start there, they completely get it. Now, some executives might not understand the details of the problems that we solve. For example, knowing it's the same customer on a mobile device and a website and a different website, or um, consolidating what is uh, siloed data sets into a single data set, or helping meet regulation like the EU data directive. That might not be on their radar screen, but this knowledge that they don't know much, enough about their customers, their consumers, they want to build those direct, direct relationships, that's a home run. Um, they all get it. But so um, really talking about that. Do you see that you have to evangelize with them? About, I mean, because you talk about this notion of silos. So you got the guy yeah. who's been, or the woman who's responsible for retail, the person who's responsible for e-commerce, the person who's responsible for, you know, the, the other channels. And and sure. so the, the CEO needs to understand that that's not just an anecdotal issue. Right, right. Yeah, and what we're finding, absolutely, there's evangelization that needs to happen. And, um, you know, the thing is, uh, what we're seeing is more and more of our relationships are getting pushed up to the CIO, pushed up to the CMO, even to the CEO, because that's the level of, of a problem that we're solving for an organization. And it does need to filter down because the reality is at the execution level, uh, this impacts a lot of different folks. This impacts the marketing team and not just the CMO, but the person in charge of email, because it's about using this these email addresses you're getting, some of this permission-based data you're getting to send better emails. It impacts the person buying media because it's the knowledge of who a valuable customer is and how do you buy more of them utilizing some of this data. It impacts the person doing on-site engagement. How can you create sort of engaging interactive experience to get people to connect or register and in-store as we talked about, right? Mm -hmm. So literally it does impact across the organization. Um, but that, I think that's part of just being a strategic technology that we're seeing 700 companies use. Um, that's, that's just a reality of it. Well, I, I get it. But, and there's a whole lot of other companies, let me say, and management that really doesn't understand how much you know, people's cheese is being moved by, yeah. what, by this whole proposition. So, um, so speaking about these um, customer engagement, what kinds of mistakes do you see people still doing? I mean, you and I get it, right? Let's say, and there's a bunch of people that do. But do you see brands still not figuring out customer engagement or, or is that sort of we moved along from there? Yeah, um, there are some. I mean, we definitely see some mistakes still happening. And uh, what are those? I, I think one of the big things we're seeing is a movement towards uh, needing to be very transparent and clear with the user and access rich permission-based data on those customers. Okay. So, um, you know, the goal, of course, is to know your customers, and there's options to do that. Again, third, buying third-party data is another is one option, for example, which is not great for the consumers. It's not good for the business either because it's expensive and it's often inaccurate data. 
Um, and then you have other things like there, I, there's companies that will kind of try to get customer data uh, at any cost and use it in a way that, that isn't clear to the customer or the consumer. We did a study, actually, you might find interesting, where we asked, um, uh, and, and we'd be happy to send this over, um, th those that um, we follow social login, the ability to log in or register with Facebook, Twitter, into a website. And what we've seen is the majority of consumers do use social login, over 50% of consumers. But for those that don't, um, the reason that they do not is that they're not clear what's happening. They're actually confused. Is their data going to be sold? Is their newsfeed going to be spammed? Um, and we actually uh, noticed, and we, we actually did a test. We came up with a, a, a program called a social privacy certification seal. That is a seal that a business can only use if they are audited and say they're going to use data in a transparent and trusted way. And who oversees that? Who oversees that? Who oversees that? Oh, so um, we have a number of clients that uh, that do that. Say overseas, I'll have to follow up with you. But uh, one off, I'm a surfer, so one off the top of my head is <laughs> association of. You're blonde as well. Um, yeah. uh, California, right? It goes with the territory. That's it. Um, the Association of Surfing Professionals, which uses, I love it that they utilize the seal, so you can check that out. I see it. And what we've seen is it increases logins as much as 18 percent. It is great for the business, right, because they're going to get more relationships with consumers, more permission-based data, very good for the, the customer, the consumer as well, right, because it's a trust experience. So I, I think that's a very common mistake. That's changing a lot because I think brands are realizing it's a two-way relationship with, with customers today. I mean, it really is a trust relationship. I totally get that. If you look at all those social logins, then who do they trust the most? Yeah, uh, good question. Well, if you uh, – if you look at sort of trust by uh, preference, which I wouldn't actually mirror the two, um, what we're seeing is that Facebook does have the uh, largest share overall. But, I mean, yeah, it, yeah, exactly. Is there a way to sort of relativize because it's obviously got the biggest pull? Yeah, and, and it is hard to relativize other than we are seeing that relatively other login providers are gaining share. And the ones that are especially gaining share are those that you could argue carry more consumer trust. So one of the really interesting trends that we see coming along is you're, you're seeing identity providers that you wouldn't traditionally consider social. And this would be things like PayPal, login through PayPal. These are things like Amazon, login through Amazon. Um, we actually speculate that Apple will become an identity provider in the near future, especially now that they've released an API for their thumbprint reader. Right? Mm -hmm. and, and the interesting things about these providers are you get the benefit to the consumer of, of ease of login, ease of registration, their higher security, and they also include payment often. So um, we really think of this idea of third-party registration, social login, more than just social. It really is other identity providers. And again, that's going to be really good for consumers but great for businesses. When you talk about streamlining payments, if you think about being able to walk into a store and take out your iPhone, put your thumb on the thumbprint reader, and that's tied to your Apple account, which is tied to some permission-based info, which is tied to payment. Gosh, that's a holy grail. And that's not, not in the too distant future. Well, I, you know, I mean, especially if you're talking about my financial details, I really want to have total security about that. And at the end of the day, what you're talking about there is the, the who owns the data. Because right. at, at a certain point, I'm in my retail store, the customer comes in, pays me, I know them. I log them into my system. I'm a brand in a retail store. 
then I have to, uh, who owns the data, who, who makes the purchase? And the purchase, the purchase uh, mechanism actually tends to own the data. So right. how do you see that playing out? Because there's going to be, yeah. that's another layer. You've got distribution, purchaser, and brand, or, or purchasing yeah, system. No, it's a great, it's a great question. And the, and the truth is it's a complicated um, area. And, and one thing I'll tell you clearly is Gigit does not own the data. So we've, <laughs> we've um, and that's a really important point because there are players out there that, that add further complication by taking data rights themselves as a vendor and maybe selling data. That's not something we do as a business. Um, really, as a consumer, you have to think about a couple different relationships. One is you have a relationship with what you'll call your identity provider. This might be Facebook. This might be uh, PayPal. might be Amazon or Twitter. If you use them to create an account on those places and then register a login to a website, um, you'll have that relationship and the data rights that that entails. Second is you'll actually, of course, have a relationship with the business or the brand and um, according to the terms of service at which you sign up and uh, register. And because that is sort of a complicated relationship, I should say that's one reason why we launched the Social Privacy, privacy Certification Seal. Mm -hmm. It makes it very clear to the consumer what they're signing up for. And we make sure that the business is adhering to certain best practices, not spamming you, not selling data, et cetera. So there is a reason for that. Um, and then I'll say there's a third point that, is actually not so complicated for consumers, but it is for businesses, which are what are the privacy data regulations around being able to use that data, right? And this is really important stuff. So in the EU, this thing called the EU Data Directive. In the US, things like topo compliance, managing data of users under 13. And that world is getting even further complicated. Australia is putting out some of their own laws. Brazil is putting out some of their own laws. And us as a business, we actually try to help the different our customers, these B2B companies or B2C companies like brands, retailers, manage all of that. So that becomes a further complication. So the bottom line is I agree it's complicated. I will say we're talking about something that's better for customers and businesses because it is permission-based. Now you have to understand what are those permissions you're giving, and that, that gets into the details. Mm. And, I mean, not to mention the fact that you've got the Samsungs, uh, also other, other devices that will become the payment device and anyway, that, the NFC and so on. So I, I wanted to, um, Patrick, talk about luxury because that's I, I, it's another space I really am interested in. And I wanted to know from your perspective, how do you see brand, luxury brands doing differently with their social engagement or at least digital engagement? What tactics, strategies, and maybe with regard to influence in particular, do you see differently being done by luxury brands? Yeah, I know. It, it's a really important point. And we're fortunate to have a lot of uh, fantastic luxury brands like Barney's uh, New York, a top-end retailer, uh, oh, Ferrari's another one, the list goes on. Uh, I, I tried to do just an exchange where I got a Ferrari and we just gave them our technology, but uh, <laughs> our CFO. Like, a, li a lifetime of buying is at Barney's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'd say a couple things. One is that um, I'll give you an example of one of our technologies, right? We have this technology um, called gamification, which is essentially a way to incentivize behavior uh, by uh, driving activity, by rewarding uh, points, giving reputation scores, um, badges often. And what you'll see is that when you move higher end in terms of moving up to luxury brands, you actually have to be uh, a little bit more subtle on how you actually express that. And it has to be very much brand appropriate. So, um, you know, one example is Kate Spade, uh, which is a, a pretty high end luxury brand um, that we work with. Uh, they do gamification, but it's actually 
really about giving people access to special um, uh, products that they wouldn't get access to otherwise, right? It's less about giving them a badge that they won something. It's more about giving them something exclusive, right? right. Uh, is, and that's the way that they think about it. So it's the same concept where they're rewarding behavior, they're rewarding frequent shoppers, they're rewarding, you know, reviewing those sorts of things, but they're giving different types of rewards, if you will. Um, and then you have this idea of, uh, becoming an influential person um, and trying to interact with other influential people. So uh, if you think about a high-end brand, it's going to be how, not so much like creating the social engagement of what are their friends doing, but what are other sort of high-end um, people like them shopping, buying, et cetera. So you might not be comparing things like your social graph, but other people like you and, and, and people that you want to be like. So it's just different elements in the site experience. But Kate Spade is a great example to take a look at. Well, totally. I, I've been following them. I like that. And the, um, but the, 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 I guess the problem where the, there's a couple of things. One is the single customer view uh, is mm. all the more important for the luxury brands because I'm a, right. I'm a customer in Tokyo and I travel to, I buy, I buy something in the, let's say Kate Spade in Tokyo. Then, then mm-hmm. I take the little plane, I fly to Rio, I go into the store, and the woman there doesn't even know that I purchased yesterday 10,000 or 100,000 yen of Kate Spade in Tokyo. And, and so that ability to have a single customer view in luxury, I think, is all the more important. Or so yeah. a single customer worldview. It's, it's a great point. Uh, Burberry, one of our clients, is, is doing something where they really want you to walk into a store They'll walk up with you with an iPad in their hand. I think it's an iPad, and and, and really try to understand quickly who you are, be able to uh, down get information about you, maybe your shopping preferences, habits, so they can really become a partner with you to help shop in the store experience. That's a that's an expectation, right, um, of those types of consumers. And when you're talking about this ability to identify someone in store uh, on mobile apps, whatever it is, internationally, as you're mentioning. That's the type of things you have to do. I think it's a great point. Yeah, I mean, this is, I, I get I get sort of almost uh, hair on my the hair on the back of my neck goes up like this when I think about, you know, if I walk into a store and, and wouldn't it be great if you could just say, well, any data. So in other words, my email. I have three. I use regularly. I have three um, mobile numbers. All of them are in there. I can give you one of the, any one of them, or and my Facebook and or my Twitter and or my. And all of those link back into me. Mm-hmm. And, and, right. and But I think there we're a long way yet from getting that to happen uh, in one country, much less in a set of subsidiaries in a big company. Yeah, um, unless they're a gig customer. I mean, that's really the uh, – again, the reason why that hasn't been possible is because most of the people that you're talking about, again, the subsidiary issue, a different site versus app, I mean, these are all sort of different legacy solutions being built out. And it does take a cloud approach to be able to manage these different touch points, consolidate different identities, do a single identity, make sure it's done in a permission-based way. Yep, I, I completely get it. And that's sort of, the again, those C-level conversations we're having when we walk into folks. Right, and I'm going to believe, and you know, of course I'm not in there with you, but I'm going to believe that at that point you are evangelizing uh, some new stuff because you're, the consequence of what you're saying is not light in terms of change management and what's going to have to happen within the organization to happen. That's right. And I think this is when you, where you get into that sort of geographical differences in terms of market maturity. I, I think we find that um, the U.S. is by far the, the most mature in understanding sort of some of these issues at play and looking for solutions. And um, 
Europe has been maybe about a year and a half or so behind the U.S., although it's been our most you know, quickly adopting vertical that we had last year. So that came on in a big way. And then I'd kind of tra trail kind of LATAM and Asia behind that. And so that, that sort of concept is, is growing, kind of expanding from the U.S., but there is sort of differences in terms of how they're approaching it and some of those things about transparency that I mentioned as well. Well, you were talking about transparency before we got on the, on the show about how transparency is the, seems to be the biggest single difference in the way that the EMEA countries are versus the U.S. Can you expand on that? Yeah, you know, it, it's it's part of the work we were um, trying to understand with some of the studies we've done when we've talked to uh, our customer base. And what we've noticed is that um, uh, the percentage of use of social login is slightly different from the U.S. versus a man. So it's going to be a little higher in the U.S., which is is actually almost all consumers are using it today. But a man is not far behind, but it has been uh, slightly behind and uh, what you're seeing is that the, the type of login providers are slightly shifted a little bit more towards some of those more trusted providers that I was uh, mm -hmm. talking about or higher security providers in the U.S. And, or excuse me, in, in EMEA. And um, I think that is sort of consumer preferences. I mean, there, there's a little bit more control that they want of their data, more transparency. Um, and uh, one thing that we've noticed is that consumers clearly in EMEA want to understand how their data is being used, um, when it's being used, what they're opting into um, in a much, much bigger way. So, uh, and that, that's to be expected. Also, one thing I'll, I'll note is the regulation from uh, government is going to be a little bit different in different regions. So that's sort of another thing. It's, gonna, it's, it's actually the, uh, I'd say, may is a little bit further ahead in the U.S. in that area. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's sort of like another thing that, that businesses have to consider. Just the last question before we just close up is, do you, I mean, this is just a supposition, but do you believe that that issue of transparency and or reluctance to give over my data could also be related to legacy history and culture with regard to institutions, whether it's governmental or business? Sure. And, and I, I would also be uh, speculating as well, but my, my sense is yes. I think there is a uh, a cultural difference. And uh, in, in, in actually, I I think in different countries even sure. uh, within within Europe, right? Um, I think we just not one mass. from Germany versus versus the UK, right? Um, and so, uh, when you're an international brand, um, you have to keep that in mind, right? right? And you have to think about what is the registration login experience in in one country versus another, and and, and that's something we help deal with. Um, and uh, yeah, but it is, by the way, all of that's changing as well pretty quickly. So yeah. it's, it's a pretty nimble space. Well, let's keep agile. Patrick, so how, what's the preferred way that you would like people to follow you, uh, follow what you're saying, doing, or, or get in touch with you? Yeah, so um, one thing is Twitter. So uh, I've got my own Twitter account, at Patrick Salyer, or Gigya um, is, is actually very active on Twitter, as you might expect, mm -hmm. at Gigya. Um, and um, you can feel free to email me directly if, if there's something you want to get in, in contact with. Very easy, patrick at gigya.com. Spectacular. Well, you know, um, I hope I'm not keeping away from your waves. Uh, thanks a lot for being on the show, Patrick. It was a pleasure to meet you, and I, I really think you are onto something, so I can't wait to share this uh, podcast with a few key people. Great. Thank, thank you for the time. Really enjoyed it, and um, take care. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com, that's mindset with a Y, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. 
If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes. That really makes my day. Happy trails and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray and heal me with all your imperfections that you mention in your lack of Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you 
and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.